he's referred to as the man in the back of the room and introduced as the voice of God. He's told U.S. presidents where to sit, given Tony and Grammy award-winning celebrities direction, and lectured scads of students. But as he likes to point out, the event entertainment expert you don't know, you don't know, Anthony Bellata. And Bellatified. Hello, and here we are again for episode 18, the podcast, Bolotify, the one and only podcast about event entertainment and engagement. I am your host, Anthony Bolotta, and I'm here with Alex Apostolidis. Say hi, Alex. Hello. I was trying... I was trying to sing the intro because we have somebody with us today who knows how to make his stick sing. (laughs) That's a way to get listenership. (laughs) It just came to me. The things kids will say. Oh, they'd say the darndest things. How are you this evening? I'm doing really well, doing really, really well. Um, you know, I'm still uh, embarrassingly so still trying to de-Christmas, but because uh, life has just been a little bit crazy. <laughs> but I'm doing well. It's only the middle of February. Uh, you know, hey, I'm a week better than I was last year. Oh, okay. Yeah. So see, Meaning what? You're not done yet. You're not finished. Well, I know, but at least the boxes are in and everything is off the walls. And the boxes are all moved from the garage, which again is at the other end of the apartment complex. And they're up in my apartment. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's a lot because you have to, it's not as easy as just storing them somewhere in your abode. You have to right. get them to your house, which is mm-hmm. not where you are right now. Right. Yeah. And uh, you know, the d- three days I had, it was raining or I was having major plumbing work done here. Right. So, yeah. And hopefully those two were not uh, the same problem. <laughs> they were not the same problem. No, they were not. <laughs> That's good. What came to mind Im- immediately is, is something that I just saw on television. I've been watching this series uh, of documentaries about money and greed and lying and cheating and stealing and one of the uh one of the subjects of one of the documentaries is alan kushner alan jared kushner who's (laughs) hello (laughs) is jared kushner and the kushner companies and what why it comes to mind is he owned you know very tenement buildings basically in new york and didn't do any construction work to fix any of the problems and when construction as he was selling apartments uh if construction was happening above somebody else because he had sold that apartment or he was redoing it to sell it he didn't care what happened to the apartment below it and one of the apartments flooded and the woman is talking about how she's showing pictures about of how her entire kitchen caved in and her 
bedroom ceiling caved in. Anyway, that's what raining and flooding brought to mind. Yeesh. But you were talking about flooding. You said raining and moving. And yeah, yeah. I've had a recurring issue for a year here. And uh, finally, this time, they they brought in a professional and said, it's it's not you, which I said, I know. And, um, you know, and the good news is, is that we do believe we've taken care of it forever. So no longer will I come home to a tub filled with chunky tar grease from the kitchen next door. Oh, God, that's awful. Yeah. You know, immediately when you walk in, what's the, ah, oh, crap. How many times did it happen? Uh, since I've lived here, it's happened five or six times in my tub and once in the sink and the, the kitchen sink, it took them four days. Um, but I will say the team that they had up here the other day, the guys were great, super apologetic, got it. It was two days of work. And, um, you know, between mine and uh, the apartment next door. And then they, they were saying, we've got to fix every single place in this building. So, you know, small things to be grateful for. I had, a, a you know, four men up here working for about five hours um, wow. on, in one day to get it fixed. And they got it fixed. And they Cloroxed and bleached my bathroom. So I was very grateful. Wow. Well, I hope it doesn't ever happen again. I hope so too. It's leaky. Yeah. yeah, it sounds <laughs> icky. I have a weak stomach. And, 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 and knowing you, it's not the kind of thing you let sit. You clean it up immediately, which doesn't take just five seconds. You know, it no. takes time. Yeah. Well, the thing is too, until they come up and take care of it, I can't clean it because it's nothing draining and it's a foot of this oh, black water. Yeah. Oof. Okay. Well, that's not nice. <laughs> so On a me, happy note. Maybe what you need is um, somebody playing a Chapman stick in your house behind you because uh, today's guest is the uh, player extraordinaire of this instrument we call the Chapman stick. And uh, we can't wait to have him on. But the thing about this instrument, it's you could be used in uh, just about any genre, rock, pop, uh, country, uh, but it's very, it's got a really soothing melodic feel to it, even though it's a stick and it's, it's played rhythmically. It's a, it's a really interesting instrument and it's fun to watch somebody playing it. It sure is. And we have somebody today who uh, is, has been playing it for many, many, many years, has recorded numerous uh, albums, has been in numerous partnerships, musical partnerships, has had his music uh, uh, become part of a, a soundtrack, a film soundtrack. Uh, and he is probably one of the most humble beings you'll ever know. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about who we have coming on and then we'll bring well, him on. He's a very well-rounded musician. He's a music producer. He's an engineer. He has his own studio. Uh, he started in the piano and then graduated with the, at the uh, excuse me, from the Berkeley College of Music 
music as a guitarist, but she still plays all those interest instruments. He didn't come to find out about the Chapman stick until 1997 when he was at an Amtrade show. And then he fell in love with it. And he released, as he calls it, his first stick-centric album in 1999. I like it. Uh, he, since then, he's just gone on and done amazing things. He Interesting little fact, uh, the president of the Grammys spotted him at a Berkeley alumni event up in LA. And from there, our guest was asked to play at four Grammy events. That's how good he is. Yeah, he's really great. So let's bring him on. Tell us who he is. So please welcome Chapman stick player, Tom Greisgraber. Hello, Tom Greisgraber. All righty, here we are with Tom Greisgraber. I have to say it like that, if you don't mind. That was, wow, that was really unique because you sounded like you had a German accent, but you gave it like the American pronunciation I used. Uh, really? So I did a little bit of it. So if you were in Germany, what? how would you say it? They they pronounce it, I mean, if you could do it with that accent, but they pronounce it more like Greisgraber. Yeah, Greisgraber. 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 Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because yeah. I was I was asking Alex to confirm with you because in German the e coming after the i would mean that you would accentuate the e, right? So that's what. But Greisgraber is Greis Greisgraber is yeah. is a little softer on the ear than you know. Greisgraber. That was my dad. Yeah, that was my dad's idea growing up. He thought I would get teased less, and I don't know that it actually helped. But it's uh yeah, it's it's a funny name to be a performer too, because I've shown up and had it on marquees where it was so badly misspelled. This only happened once, but it was so badly misspelled at this place in Santa Cruz once that if you pronounced it phonetically, it looked like Greaseburger. Oh thought, who's gonna come to this show? Right. <laughs> or what do they expect to do? Well, you and Alex have that in common, the the difficulties. Well, my name's just a tad easier, but your names are more, they're more impostolites. Let me just put it that way. Impostolites. And it they're wasn't very until I started giving it the correct pronunciation that people could get it. But the Americanized pronunciation is apostolitis. And <laughs> but the, the proper not... Greek way is apostolites. So do you remember <laughs> where you were? Do you remember where you were when it was spelled incorrectly on what marquee and what performance that was? Yeah, exactly. It was a, um, well, they did something else that was really bad and kind of funny in hindsight, but they, um, it was up around Santa Cruz and I was doing a tour with the drummer, Jerry Murata, who was Peter Gabriel's drummer for years. And the venue we were supposed to be at, something happened, like they lost their liquor license or something, and, and they actually shut down like a week or two before the show. And the promoter was able to move into a different venue, um, totally last minute. And it was crazy because we had the best PR on that tour for that show. So if you know, if you're familiar with Santa Cruz, I mean, it's, you got to cross the mountains from like San Jose. I mean, it's from San Jose, it's a windy mountainy drive it takes you, I don't know, 30 minutes to an hour on traffic, I guess. And we had the major San Jose newspaper do like a three, four page article on us with like three different pictures and things. We had all the local papers cover it. So we had all this press 
we had like a hundred and some more people than we thought show up to this venue. Um, that was a reschedule to begin with, but we show up and yeah, it's, you know, Greaseburger Murata on the marquee. And then they had a little bio printed out and somehow the bio for me, instead of saying all my personal credits, they'd taken them from Tony Levin, who's Peter Gabriel's stick player and all the people he'd played with. So it said, you know, Tom Greaseburger has played with Peter Gabriel and Paul Simon and like oh, all these no. major names. I'm like, I'm like, this is bad, you know? So, yeah, I never heard anything more about it, but I just, I saw it and was grimacing. I was like, oh, I don't want somebody else's no, credits. No, no, because you know? the inference is that you supplied those credits. You provided yeah. them and they wrote them down. Not that they made them up, you know, it doesn't look good for you, for goodness yeah. sake. Wow. Well, Miss, that's, that's, do you even... That's part of being a stick. Is it, there's so few stick players that they just somehow they associated Tony as a stick player and me as a stick player and they, they switched us. So it was funny. Yeah, I think it's hard when they don't understand what the instrument is to begin with and they can't visualize it and they don't know how it works. And then they see, oh, there's two people there. Okay, well, what does yeah. that mean? Do they play that yeah. stick together? Like what's, you know, so uh, it's amazing, you know, how much information you have to provide to people just to get them to understand. So tell us about the stick that you're holding, this gorgeous Chapman stick that you're holding in your hand. Is that an eight, 10 or 12 string? So it's technically called the grand stick being 12 strings. Yes, it is. The, you can actually get them in all different tunings, but this is more or less Emmett's original tuning where I've got two sets of strings. There's six what we call melody and six bass. Um, and very unusual for a stringed instrument, they actually go low to high out from the middle. So the lowest strings on both sides are actually right in the middle. Um, mm. But the melody side is close to a guitar tuning. It's tuned with the strings four notes apart as you go up. And the bass side with the low string in the middle is coming up towards you five notes at a time, which is very unusual. There's, I'm not aware of any other stringed instrument that has two tunings going out from the middle like this, but it's part of Emmett Chapman's original design and it, it, it functionally works well once you kind of wrap your brain around it. Well, so, it works for the two-hand approach, which is why the instrument was built to begin with because most people or most guitarists would write, they would use yep. two fingers. Yeah. For the rhythm but right. he was using both hands for so two on top two on the bottom that's interesting yeah. well it's actually you know emmett's a normal guitar player you're going to use four fingers in your left hand and then you use a pick or maybe your fingernails in the right hand um but in emmett's case he's the first person we're aware of who came up with the idea in 69 to actually play in the right hand just like he did in the left hand and so the hands became equal partners and he calls it the free hands technique but um, that almost necessitated the need for a new instrument. And he spent about five years putting it together. And so you have these two string sets where the one set is in the right hand, usually is tuned in a way that's a little easier for melodies, scalar playing. Um, and the left hand's better for accompaniment that it actually gets into a low bass guitar range as well as a guitar range all in one hand. So you're kind of sonically, you can almost cover the role or the range of two guitars and bass in your two hands. Mm -hmm. um, he had he had the genius from in the early days too that he actually gives it two outputs. And so each hand actually has its own output and you can process them with different electronics and actually have two sounds going at once. 
or in the case of this one, I actually have a, a third output as well, which is like a guitar synthesizer pickup. It's an add-on. So my right hand can do almost any sound a guitar can do as well as anything a keyboard can do while the bass is in its own world with its own set of sounds. So where's your head during all of this? <laughs> really? That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was hoping I have all the gear programmed and set up right and everything's <laughs> plugged in right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you didn't start out as a Chapman stick player in your musical career. You just, you, you caught on in 97, right? Uh, but before that you yeah. played guitar. What else did you play Correct. before yeah. that? I, well, my first instrument as a child was piano. And I, I think I started that around five or six years old and took classical piano lessons for probably about six years. Um, kind of lost interest and, and didn't really do anything for a year or two and then suddenly got into electric guitar and um, rock guitar was kind of my thing for a while and then that sort of morphed into jazz and I actually did quite a bit of jazz in college, um, wound up going to Berkeley in Boston um, where if, if nothing else you had to kind of study jazz harmony because it was it's a more advanced chordal harmony approach. Um, but, you know, it's always been sort of this mixed bag of things. And I was always kind of searching to just do something different. So about a year and a half after college, I found the Chapman Stick at a NAM music trade show. And it was actually Tony Levin, who I mentioned, playing it. And I just saw it. And he was playing these really simple patterns. But I was watching him thinking, I have no idea what this tuning is. I don't know what this instrument is. But the patterns he was playing visually, I could see them and think, I think I could do that because he was what he was playing at the time was fairly simple. Um, and it just struck me that like, this doesn't quite sound like guitar. It doesn't quite sound like bass. You could get this and do some music. That's just a little outside the norm. And that was really appealing. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was it. I found a used one online um, pre eBay and it was like a stick email list. And somebody posted they were selling one in North Carolina, and I mailed this check off to these people, hoping they sent something in return. Right, that <laughs> would work. That had all the strings, or at least the fret, everything you needed. Right. Yeah. 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 And but that it came. That was, yeah, it came. That was the first one, and then shortly thereafter, I mean, I've been kind of blessed that Emmett Chapman is up in L.A., and so I had that one. That was a ten-string, and I had it for maybe like a year but then i went up to emmett's to have him maybe work on it and he had a 12 string there that um he was selling a little cheaper because it was most of the wooden ones he makes are laminated wood so it's layers of wood glued together sure he had this one that was actually a one piece of a kind of wood called shedua and he was selling it cheap because the wood had kind of buckled and he had to do some fancy filing on it and i thought i'll take that one like i don't i don't care if it's a little off as long as it plays right and um that was the first 12 string that i had for a long long time so so what is the difference obviously other than the strings between the 8 the 10 and the 12 what what does it allow you to do in in terms of variety or in terms of styling sure the typically 10 was the original and when he started doing the next iteration, it was actually 12, I think. And that adds typically an extra low melody string and an extra high bass string. So you're expanding the range of both sides so that there's actually more overlap between them. And for me, the main 
thing I love about the 12 is having that extra high bass string because it means I can do a little more variety in the left hand with chords. I can get a little more of a guitar type chord voicings and things in the left hand. Um, the eight string, I think originally he started doing them tuned more like an enormous bass guitar where instead of having two sets of strings with two different tunings, it's actually one set going one direction. Um, mm. and I do actually have a hybrid instrument he calls the NS stick, which is short for Ned Steinberger, who, if you've ever seen those headless guitars and basses, that's was originally by Ned Steinberger. And Ned and Emmett collaborated to make an eight string essentially stick, but it's set up a little more like a bass. So it's whole purpose in life is to try to be a cross between a bass guitar and a Chapman stick. Mm. Um, so you can actually finger pick it a little easier and tap it as well. Right. But, it, but essentially playing an eight and it's different than playing a 10 or a 12. It's a, it's a different it's, technique. Yeah. That Do tuning, you... like I've never really played the NS stick solo because it's more like an elaborate bass and I really miss the fullness you get with the two tunings on stick because the two tuning stick, that left hand tuning, um, I can demo it quick for you if you want, but the left hand can play these low bass notes, but then you're quickly getting into a chord range and that's still all just in one hand. And you kind of miss that when you have a bass guitar tuning, you can't get that fullness out of one hand. Right. Playing more like a, a line or something. Right. So, right. So, so you'd use that maybe as part of a band uh, setup, but not necessarily as a solo instrument as you do the 10 or the 12. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's been my approach to it is to use it on records and things, the NS stick where it's, you know, you just want the sound of it or you want, um, you can do more like a bass line in the left hand instead of chords in the left hand and maybe still some chords in the right or a little riff or something. So you're more like a bass player with too much going on than you are really like a solo <laughs> performer. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. so you've, you've, you've cut a few albums, you've written original music. Uh, you have the partnership with Jerry Murata, which is um, agent 22, or is that, or is that slightly stupid? <laughs> that's um no I, the long-running drum partnership i have is actually a, a drummer named ryan moran who, he he goes by the stage name rymo but he's the one that plays with slightly stupid and he and i were friends before i even owned a stick so when i got it and started working on recordings he was the first guy i called and we still to date play as much as we can um our own music as well as a lot of projects for other people um Jerry lives out in New York, so we did an album together. We did a bunch of tours together through Europe and a little bit in the States. And um, there's another duo I've had for a long time with a guitarist named Bert Loms from the California Guitar Trio, mm -hmm. which is about the only group I've had in recent years where I don't have to play all the melodies and stuff because there's actually a guitarist. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> there's been a lot of projects. But Agent 22 is a reference to Ryan Moran and I, Rymo and um there's been some different people that would sit in and play with us for different projects we did an album with a great local guitarist named jimmy Patton was on it um, but most of the gigs over the years have been ryan and i as a duo um, and it almost kind of happened in a funny fortunate way because i the first album i did was the agent 22 album 
And at the time, I think we started recording, I'd owned a stick for about a year. And, you know, I, I couldn't really do with it all the things I can do now, obviously. Mm-hmm. But having the extra member around at the time as on guitar meant that I didn't have to do one of the hardest things you do on stick, which is to say, hold an accompaniment in the left hand and do, say, a improvised solo in the right. And my ability at that was a little limited at the time, but having a guitar player there, it almost became like I was bass and accompaniment and sort of like the lead singer with the written part in the right hand. And then you'd have the moment in the song where the lead singer goes out and the lead guitar comes right. in and it was him. <laughs> right. But then as we kept going as a duo, it was like, well, I can do this now. So, you know, you almost didn't need that extra person. So. Well, and that's what makes the playing of it so remarkable and the instrument itself so remarkable is the fullness the rich sound that you get from it uh we work with tom generally as a solo artist because it's uh it's a you play the instrument you play the stick beautifully i have to say it that way and uh you um you have such presence when you do and it in itself is a conversation starter. So mm-hmm. it, it, it serves so many purposes and it's, it's a, it's great to have at events because it's not, there's 7,000, about 7,000 of them in the world that 7, Emmett has made. Yeah, He's made about 7,000, but if you factor that around the world and then a lot of players own multiple, I mean, I've got five of them, right? Uh, right. Probably some aren't even playable anymore so as long as i've been doing it in san diego i'm not i haven't really been aware of anybody else doing shows the way i do you know and that's 20 years plus now at this point um i have one student in town i see sometimes (laughs) but you know and similarly i mean la being where they're from and being just la with a lot of people you know there's maybe a half dozen players out there that would do a show once in a while or something but if you compare that to guitar or something, it's it's a crazy difference. How long did it take you to transition from guitar to this? And I mean, did you take lessons? Did you learn or did you were you self-taught on this? It's it's another funny stick statistic. Um, but <laughs> at the time I got it, there were only two books in print for it. There's a couple more now, but there was one by Emmett, and then there was one by a fellow from Virginia named Greg Howard. And, I, you know, I was used to music school. I bought both books and I just started working through them a page at a time. And I've, I've told this story before, but at the time I got it, my initial thought was, well, I'll use this in a band I was already playing with. And it'll just be an interesting thing we pull out once in a while to kind of do something different, get some, you know, attention sort of. But the band didn't really like that I was doing that. And, and I suddenly found myself without a band, <laughs> at which point I thought, well, all right, let me work on this full time. And I started practicing about 20 hours a week. And in about a year and a half, I think I could play about an hour's worth of material at that point. And then it became a thing of, I don't know why I had this number. You guys might laugh at this. I had this number in my head that before I do any kind of show, I need two hours of material and I'm doing it all from memory. And so I started, I made a list of what could be hour number two. And I started memorizing that. And I started forgetting hour number one. And I thought, oh, this is going nowhere. And I, I need to have a place where I could go and just play these things 
a million times and maybe make some tips right. or something. So right. I actually got a little battery. I went down to Balboa Park and I would just busk in Balboa Park anytime. They used to have a lottery. You had to be part of a lottery to even get a spot. But if I won the lottery, I'd stay down there until I was like sunburned or the amp lost its charge and just play that same material over and over and over for hours. So that was that was really the start of it. And, and today, I know one of the things locally a lot of people say they see me at is the San Diego Fair. And mm -hmm. I've done that for decades. And it's um, it's a similar thing where, you know, more recently, the shows have been two hours, but there were years down there where they would give me four hour shows, six hour shows. I've done as much as 10 hour wow. days on stage. Wow. <laughs> and it, it's just, you know, but that's, that's kind of my, my real practicing. In yeah, a way. And if you think about it from a yeah. fair goer going perspective, it's probably the one soothing area in that cacophony of craziness where people can go and just relax as a matter of fact i think i've heard you at the fair uh it's alluring actually you're playing because of that because it's it's hypnotic you know almost the the way the instrument allows you to just relax it's so soothing and yet it crosses so many genres right i mean it's you, it's a rock instrument, it's a pop instrument, it's a jazz instrument, right? I mean, you play all kinds of music with it, which is also fabulous about it. Yeah, I mean, it's when people ask, what kind of music do you do? I mean, I to me, the stick being as different as it is, you know, it's a little guitar-ish, it's a little piano-ish, but it's got its own chord voicings. It's got its, you play chords more like you'd play them on piano, but you're playing with more of a guitar and bass sound it kind of naturally generates a type of music that's a little different. And so it, it borrows from everything for me, but um, yeah, I'm just kind of it, a music nerd anyways. So. Well, you don't, you're not a nerd to us. It's got a, it's, it's got a very ethereal feel to it in a sense. You can do some, make some sounds that feel very natural and ethereal and hypnotic. And I can see it being used in, um, aquatic settings, um, you know, just, be, but on the other hand, you can make it come alive as well. You can yeah, really, and, it's, and it really, sometimes it really depends on the event, the setting as to which directions I go. And so I know sometimes I think you guys, when I first was working with you, sent me the form that said, well, what's your set list? And I kind of said, well, it's going to pull from this and this and this and this, but mm -hmm. I usually try to read the room and see what's going on and just suss out, you know, what's the feel of the room. Uh, there's a different energy when people are coming in and they're all saying hello to each other and they're all chit chatting than there is when they're sitting and eating dinner. than there is at the end of the night when there some people have left and it's a little quiet and more subdued and, mm -hmm. you know, and all of that said, that's very different than what we just talked about the fair. I mean, there's certain pieces that if I did them at the fair, they just get lost in the cacophony and, mm -hmm. you know, of all the people and the whatever. Um, but there's other pieces that if I played them as background music at dinner, I'd be in trouble. <laughs> so, so I kind of, it's always figuring that out. Right. I, I'm but guessing the more familiar, the, the more familiar poppy tunes work at the fair. Is that, yeah, I mean, is that things, general guess i would i would i would describe it somewhat 
degradingly as saying the look at me tunes you know the things that kind of like jump at you and, and have more notes and maybe more changing sounds quickly and um you know if i, I play I just, something that's a little yeah if i play something that's a little more introspective ballad like that that's where it, it feels like you know i can't really hold a sustained chord because there's so much other noise going on it kind of gets lost whereas if you're in a quiet environment like the polar opposite to that would be i've done a lot of um concert tours around the country where sometimes we would do house concerts and if you're in a house concert where there's maybe 30 50 people the background noise is so quiet that even if i'm working pedals like volume pedals or something i have to be careful how i step on them because mm -hmm. it's it's a noise in the room yeah whereas something like that i mean for stomping all over the stage at the fair you know it doesn't none of that matters so um yeah so what's a tune that what's a tune or two that you would pick for the fair that you wouldn't necessarily play for a room of 30 and vice versa can you come up with just quickly just a, off the well you know as an original piece I, I frequently would do something of mine it's an original called victor's chase which the name is uh actually a reference to the novel frankenstein of all things and it's um it's one where I really get all the bells and whistles of the stick going. So I have the, the synth pickup doing this kind of fake choir. The guitar side has a rock distortion on it. The bass side has a little more aggressive sound. And I'm kind of throwing that all out at once. I see. You want to hear 30, you yeah. want 30 seconds or so I can get probably... give us give us give us the, the the first, you know, 32 bars of, you know, this opening. We're at the fair, we're walking around, we don't know what we want to do, and suddenly... when watching you at the fair um is that you you're expending a lot of energy up there you know this yeah. isn't, you don't look like you're just sitting there very gently playing like i'm feeling this is a, a physical feat well you know what's funny is we're talking about these different styles and and a lot of times when people come up to me they say all kinds of things about the music but one of the things they say sometimes is oh i love your music it's so mellow and sometimes I'm thinking like, wow, what are you hearing? Because I'm working hard up here. <laughs> like I'm playing all these notes and right. juggling all these sounds. Like, okay, if you think it's mellow, if, as long as that's what you like, fine. <laughs> Call it what you want. But Yeah, I think what they mean is, well, there's uh, uh, an allegato kind of feeling that it has. It's very melodic. And I mean, that's it's one of those things that you do it so well that it feels effortless to the listener. And that's the point I'm making. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're making those beautiful sort of, you know, melodic, harmonic, you know, tones just come alive so easily. So you get Thanks. degraded a bit. Yeah, because people don't understand all that work that it takes to 
to make that happen. I'm amazed yeah. that you're able to handle the melody and counter melodies or sub melodies or, you know, all it with, with two hands and 12 strings the way you do. Well, in, you know, it's funny. You, we were talking about what would I play at the fair and uh, it's almost become a regular stage banter thing for me that if I have an audience sitting in a venue where I'm actually talking to them, like not a background music event, obviously, but I might ask the audience, well, would you rather the next piece be something pretty or something weird? And they always come back asking for weird. You know, there may yes. be one person out of that asks for pretty, but they, they want to see the unusualness. They want to see it just shock them, I guess. So, you know, I know where that question is going to go usually. But I think ultimately for somebody like me, it's the, it's the ability to do both. It's the exactly. ability that, you know, to take it, to take uh, listeners on a bit of a ride, if you will, with the dynamics and, uh, you know, using stuff that's weird and stuff that's more melodic and, you know, elusive. Yeah, I never, I never stay in one zone too long, usually, because to me, it's also about contrast. I mean, it's that idea in art that you can't, you know, too much light is lost because you need the dark mm -hmm. you, and vice versa. There's no mm -hmm. too much of one thing you kind of get lost. And so I'm trying to keep people engaged by throwing these, you know, fairly different things at them sometimes. And I, and I've, you know, another thing I've done a lot as a performer is work as an opening act for national acts and stuff, sometimes touring with them, sometimes just regionally. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a very different scenario where it's not the four hour show or the 10 hour day, or it's, you got 30 mm -hmm. minutes, get on, get off. Mm -hmm. Nobody's, you know, few people are there to see you. They're there to see the headliner. Right. And, and I, I've tried different things over the years, but I usually start out a little more simple, you know, because they don't know what the instrument is anyway. So I can catch their attention just by the instrument. But then once they've heard a couple songs or something, it's like, well, okay, now let's bring out some bells and whistles and, and mm -hmm. get them paying attention again. Yeah. It's so a beautiful, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a it's, bit it's of so, storytelling actually in your music, you know? Yeah, it's the, it is. And, and that's, that's actually what I go for too. There's um, even one album I've done, the one, one with Bert Loms where we actually blossomed, it's all instrumental music, but we actually put a 12 page book in the CD package, which has original diary entries, fictional diary entries of, of a wagon train journey in the 1800s. Wow. So the whole album is Missouri river to the West coast based on historical things we pulled up, but fiction. And each song has the song title and then a little diary entry with illustrations as to what this person's experiencing going across the country by a wagon train in about 18. Wow. So yeah. that's, that's incredible so cool. detail. That, that was and you know, you mentioned something earlier and we just sort of glided over, but it's important. Uh, it's very important as a musician and an artist that you read the room which means that your head isn't in your music. You already stated that you memorize everything, which we're, Alex and I are from theater backgrounds and we understand that it's a discipline. When you get a script, you learn the lines. And so if you're a musician, you learn the music and you can't read a room if you're not, if your head's in the music. So um, talk about that discipline, would you? And, and what brought you to that? and Why it's important to you? 
Well, I mean, it's funny because my background, having had a bit of jazz, you know, you learn improvisation and being a solo performer, you have that ability to not only, you know, pick your set list as you go, but change the piece as you go. And sometimes I'm in situations where, um, well, I'll give you one of the crazier examples and it happened locally. I'll, I'll leave them nameless, but I got hired by a dance teacher who was going to have a dance recital and he choreographed some tap dancers to one of my pieces, one of my original pieces. And uh, he wanted me to play with a drummer. And so the two of us are there playing and we start playing the piece and he was going to bring the tap dancers out at a certain spot in the show or in the song. And we did two performances. The first performance, he brought them in about eight bars too early. And so I just turned to the drummer and I, you know, I gave him that eyeball look of, okay, we got to rearrange the song on the fly and and edit out eight bars here. And we did it. And then I I talked to the teacher during the intermission and before show two. And I said, you know, that was eight bars early. He's like, I know, I know I messed up. I'll do it right next time. Of course, the next show he overcorrected and brought him in eight bars too late. So we had to do the exact opposite and add an extra eight bars. But as a stick player, you can do that. And with a drummer, if they're really in sync with you, you know, the right eye Mm -hmm. contact can do that. And the drummer I mentioned, Ryan Moran, and I, having played together for so long, I mean, one of the funniest examples of that, he got married a number of years ago, and he had me play as guests were coming in to just sit down before the wedding. And I was supposed to play a different piece when his bride was coming in. And uh, there was a wedding coordinator who was supposed to give me a cue when that was time, when it was ready. And so I was playing one piece of music, well, the wedding coordinator, I don't know where she was, but she never gave me a cue. She wasn't around. And suddenly the bride's walking down the aisle and my friend is already standing up the front of the aisle. And I, I kind of glanced at him and he gave me our stage look of just keep going. Like, just forget about the other piece. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> and so, you know, in the middle of his wedding, we had that kind of wordless communication of, okay, we're changing right. gears and, you know, it's fine. Right. Work it out as How we did go. the bride right. react to that? Just out of curiosity. I never heard anything. I mean, he was, he was just grateful that, you know, that there wasn't like this awkward thing that felt like a mistake in the middle of it. So Mm -hmm. it worked. Yeah. And and that goes to, you know, uh, preparedness, uh, which is what professionals do. They know their stuff so that when this kind of thing happens, they're able to adapt. You, you just explained why it's so necessary to, know your material and have a plan and that also speaks in our world to the planner side and you know um to the fact that it's important that the artist have as much information as possible so that the artist can prepare as efficiently as possible it's a two-way street uh and it's this is a great reason why it's because you want that artist to be able to react, respond to what it is that happens. That's what makes, that's what makes, gives you the big bucks. What do they say? That's why you make the big bucks. <laughs> that's why you make the big bucks. And it's the stuff that people don't appreciate or notice until it happens and they see it. And they see how smooth you are and how you respond to it. And then they have a whole new respect for what it is you're able to do. But most of it goes unseen, unnoticed because that's the job of the professional, right? To make it look easy, to make it look like it was supposed to happen that way. Yeah, I mean, I could tell you so many stories of 
times sometimes when just something didn't go right even with equipment or something and you just have to wing it and figure it out um coming to my mind right now was a tour i did with jerry marotta where we were opening for tony levin's band in italy and we were down in i think around sicily or something in this great thousand seat old theater um sold out and we're the opening act and we're playing and my equipment keeps distorting it keeps going and i didn't figure it out till after the show that what was happening was um their voltage wasn't up to spec mm. so when they when they would bring up the stage lights it would actually suck power out of the the equipment and my gear would just distort but i knew that it was certain pieces of gear and jerry loved talking to the audience anyways and so we took this real funny pause where he gets up and just starts telling jokes and talking to the audience I run backstage to get a different cable I needed. I completely repatch my gear and kind of strip it down from the units that were having problems. And we play the rest of the show like without as many bells and whistles on the stick, just kind of revamp right. it. Um, wow. And, you know, people were happy. I mean, it was, it was Italy where we That's went out incredible. after our set. They don't know what they missed. We went out to our set. Oh, no, I mean, it was, we went out to the lobby to sell CDs after our set and they were so excited. I was worried we were going to get crushed to death. Like you hear about football games that go uh. crazy. Gary and I are standing behind this podium selling CDs and people are pushing against it and they're pushing us into a wall trying to get to us and buy things. And I'm like, Jerry just had the presence of mind to just go, stop, stop. You know, he's a New York Italian, so he can, he can kind of project <laughs> that. Wow. An adventure for sure. Tell me, tell us what are the, some of the things that you're working on now? What's going on in the life of the Chapman stick player, Tom? Well, you know, the, pandemic, the pandemic thing has given me a chance David. to do things that have been on the back burner for a while. Like I have, um, you know, a fairly overblown home studio that I do all, all my own music and a lot of music for other people sometimes. And I've had a few projects to do during this time of lockdown because um, you can do everything remote that way. But I've also taken the opportunity to tweak the acoustics a little bit. I have a host of acoustic absorption panels as well as diffusion panels shaping the sound of a couple of the rooms in the house. And um, it's given me an opportunity to kind of fine tune that with some acoustics companies. But I've also been recording some new music of my own that I've been very slow to get to over the years. And it's funny, but all the albums I've done have always been, even if they were a solo album in title, I had guests on them. I had drummers with me. I had friends playing on different tracks. And people have always asked me for an album that's just me and just the stick. And so I'm I'm doing that because <laughs> I'm here. So I've got Good. about six tracks right now. I'm, I'm rewriting, rearranging bits for a couple more. Um, but, I, you know, I would say I'm about... 70 ish percent done on the writing recording part of it um so you know i don't know how i'm taking my time about it trying to get things the way i want them but there's no good. reason not to good but, yeah, how, long have, big... how, how long have you been here in san diego I was born here encinitas native so really um yeah, yeah. my I, I mean that's part of the reason i've to be honest, that, that I can do what I do here and have, you know, a house and a studio and everything was, I'm, I took over the house I grew up in, in 2008. And wow. it's kind of So you're in Encinitas. Yeah. And so the room I'm actually in right now, which is, you know, 
used to be known as a living room. It's now known as the live room for the studio. Um, as as a kid, this was like the living room. I wasn't really allowed in. You know, yes. we'd come in here for Christmas and Thanksgiving if there were guests. And the rest of the year, you couldn't come in here. Um, now it's the room that I, you know, completely took over. And I've got all these panels on the walls and hanging from the ceiling. And I ran mic cables through the wall and special electrical lines. And like just, it's a complete <laughs> difference. It's definitely your house now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, you, you know, know, I joke about it, but I, even by studio standards, I've done some things that are kind of unconventional. Like I ran, I have an upstairs room where that's the control room that sort of runs spaceship. And then the downstairs room is where people perform usually. But um, from room to room, I've got about 32 microphone lines going through the walls. And the, the cable company I work with, Mogami, you know, they make cable that's specifically for that, that are a lot of studios would normally use where you put a bunch of mic lines in one smaller diameter cable. They call it a snake. And mm -hmm. when talking to them when I was doing it, they said, well, if, if you can have the space, it'll sound better if you use, you know, 32 separate lines instead of a snake cable. So I actually just bored a big enough hole through the wall to have, you know, 32 separate cables instead of one snake cable. Wow. Um, so I kind of nutty details to get things sounding as good as I can. Wait, so can you record a choir in your house? Just put people in different yeah. rooms and Yeah, I mean we've done in the live room I've had as much as about a five piece band at once, like keyboards, drums, guitar, bass, second guitar or something. Um I have had a, a choir from UCSD came up once. There there was an album I did it's a funny one, but a great one from two monks, actually. They're Dominican friars. Um, they called their group Black and White. And for a while, they ran <laughs> the Catholic the Catholic extension or whatever at UCSD. And so they would work with students and things. And, and they're both musicians, and they love singing. And they'd sort of written these songs. <laughs> and you know, they're, they're singers. They weren't really instrumental. So they came to me with a set of lyrics and melodies and not much more. And so I sat down with them and we kind of finished the arrangements of the songs. And then they, they got really ambitious. They said, well, we want this one to be kind of a gospel funk and we want this one to be a reggae and we want this to be more like a hip hop thing. And we want, this one's going to have the choir on it. And this one's going to be more like African pop music. And I was like, okay. So I called my friend Ryan and I said, here's what we're doing. He comes over with his drums and I did all the guitars, bass, wow. all the keyboards and he does drums and percussion. And then, Kids came up from UCSD and sang as kind of a choir thing. And, you know, the layers just start stacking up. It sounds to me like but, um, you, you led the horse to water and then the horse drank. You, yeah. Yeah. Sure. We can do this. Sure. That sounds great. We can do this. Sure. That sounds great, too. We can do this. Sure. That sounds great, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm happy when people come over to the studio to do whatever they need. I mean, there's a musician you guys probably know. I, I, yeah, you do know him locally named Peter Pupping you're probably familiar with who's mm -hmm. been oh uh, yes and he um he was actually an old guitar teacher of mine pre-stick and so i've recorded i think three albums of his now and usually that's a scenario where he's got himself or he's got his band and they've got their thing they do live and maybe i guessed on a track but he's he's pretty self-contained so i'm really just the engineer at that point and i'm plugging in the microphones and tweaking knobs and you know it's a very different role from that scenario to 
what I described with the black and white group or another one that was crazy full circle. I mentioned having gone to Berkeley College of Music um, a number of years ago, some friends of mine who work at the school um, asked me to record and play on their album. And they brought out four people from Boston and it was a singer keyboard player who's actually the the dean of admissions for berkeley and then mm-hmm. the, the guy i know the guy i know best is now like vice president of global initiatives for the school and he's mm-hmm. kind of guitar player and they'd written all these rock songs together and they asked me to be the bass player and they wanted to track everything live to get kind of a live rock band feel and so that was a crazy one where the the guitarist is actually a jazz comp has his master's in jazz composition and so he a lot of the bass parts he'd notated them in music, regular music notation so he's giving me the sheet music so i'm in the upstairs room the other four people in the band are downstairs i'm trying to monitor all the recording levels and everything on the recording engineering side while reading music notation that's spread across the recording console and playing bass as I go. So, you know, I had to go back and kind of fix some mistakes in the bass lines on that one. But, um, you know, I love a good challenge. I just love music. I mean, that's, that's what I meant when I said I'm a music nerd earlier. It's like, as long as it's something creative and interesting, I'm, I'm there. Uh, you know, you can ask me to push buttons. You can ask me to play notes, you can, whatever. I'm happy to be involved. So. We're going to keep that in mind. We're going to keep that yeah, in mind, absolutely. Tom, because there are times when we uh, we're putting together performances or shows. It would be great to include you in, you know, something of that nature if you're a game. But I'm yeah, I can think of a few ways to do it. You know, I wanted to mention that we um, I was initially introduced to the Chapman Stick by a gentleman named Michael Colwitz, who oh, yeah. came. Do you, do you know who he is? He lived here for a short time in San Diego and he was marketing to me and I became intrigued by the instrument and then heard some of his playing and we began to work with him and then he moved to back to Canada because of, you know, California laws and how difficult it is to, you know, make a living. Sure. So, uh, so then we didn't have a Chapman stick player working with us for a while. And then, through Lauren Smith, we met you. And we're grateful that you're here because again, like you said earlier, there's only about six to 7,000 of them in the world and you own five, they're, that, that, they're not that many players. It's a very unique, wow. right? And you play it yep. so beautifully. Uh, so that Thanks. we're just so blessed to have you here. I wanted to, I wanted to bring that story full circle because, uh, that's you know we we were so excited when we found out through lauren that he knew you we were so excited yeah well michael uh, you know i know michael usually goes by michael k he was smarter than me and just abbreviated the difficult last name but he actually um as i've known him i think he's lived in hawaii and um the stick community is so small that most of us sort of know each other and it's it's funny i've i mentioned there's a few people up in la i had somebody booked me for an event in palm springs not too long well pre-pandemic and it was a private party where i think they'd had another stick player and so i went out and these people had had a stick player before and they said oh we love your music we're so glad you're back and <laughs> it's my first time there and it's just kind of, oh, happy to be here again i guess but, you know, they see, they see 
end of this discussion. Well, it's got to be that same guy. It's the same instrument. So, and you don't look <laughs> anything like Michael Michael Kay, not at all. You know, that is so funny. It's how people get so blinded no. by something. Well, listen, the the instrument made the impact, right? That's what's important. Would you like to would you like to uh, play us out? Would you like to give us a little something to uh, before we say sure. goodbye? I'll do. A, I did a little bit of a weird thing earlier. I'll do something that's a little nicer. And this is actually um, this is something that I did on the first solo album I did, and it's a piece that is called "Waking the Day." Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Greisgraber.
thanks. That was beautiful. Thanks. That it's, was uh, as I said, a little condensed. Uh, you know, I thought we'll keep it radio friendly. And you, uh, you wrote that. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful piece. Beautiful. It really is. I, I mean, you know, you talked about it telling a story, your your music telling a story, and I'm a very visual person. And as I was listening to you, all these images and these stories were coming up in my head. And I mean, I was thinking, ooh, this would be a good screenplay. And this is a great idea. for. And I mean, literally just these visions and thoughts and it, it really inspiring. Thanks. That's, that's ultimately what I tend to go for. You know, I, I've had this discussion recently with people as I've been writing things and playing little recordings for friends and, you know, some, you have an option sometimes as a writer, like, am I making something that's just going to be, I hate to say monotone, but, but one mood all the way through or right. one feel. And that has a point. There's nothing wrong with that. Like that works better as background music sometimes, you know, that you can kind of put it on and just, it's there as sort of ambient music. And then there's the thing of, well, let's put a few little twists and turns in there because it feels more like a story. And maybe it's, it's you know, not as good as background music sometimes, but maybe it's telling a little more of a story. It's a little more engaging. So I, I tend to go for that other side a little bit more, I think, but depends on well, the end, of course. I, I think what you said earlier, though, you hit the nail on the head. It's always a story. There's always a story involved. Even the event has a story. And the fact that you're keeping your eyes open and your ears open as you're playing allows you to weave into the story that's being told and help to propel it along when necessary. Sure. If used correctly, you know, and if, you know, the planner cues you when they're supposed to, well, you, you know, know it's not all on you. Yeah, well, being being the stick player, you know, you have to be ready for some funny ones, too, that a lot of musicians probably don't get. Like, it's almost every event that somebody will come up and ask you what the instrument is. And if they're polite, they do it between songs. And if they don't understand what it is to be a musician, they do it right while you're playing. <laughs> and it's, you know, you, you, I'm trying to explain the history of the instrument while both hands are playing two different parts is, is sometimes a right. little tongue-tying. But, um, and yeah. And that wasn't some, that wasn't some, that wasn't something I, I imagine that you anticipated would be, uh, you know, one of the issues of being a professional musician that as you're playing, you'd have to also have conversation. No, but it, but it was very apparent early on of being a stick owner before I could even play a piece of music on the stick. I can remember going into a music store and trying to even figure out what, what kind of amplifiers am I going to plug this into? And I was in a, in a, big guitar store just plugging into guitar and bass amps just banging out some notes not even a song and little crowds started to form and i thought like wow all my all my college education if i was playing at that time my main instrument guitar everybody's used to that they wouldn't be coming over and starting a conversation with you but the fact that you're playing something that is so unique it gets people's attention and and there's another side of this if i'm not rambling on i was playing at a music trade show the nam show with emmett chapman one time and there were some other stick players and we were kind of trading sets on a little stage in the lobby of the LA convention center. And Emmett said something to me that's always stuck with me. He said, if you look out at this crowd, it, you see all kinds of people from all kinds of walks of life because they don't know in looking at this instrument, what the music is going to be. 
it's not as if you have a classical music audience and somebody walks on with a flaming red electric guitar and they go, oh, this isn't for me before they even right. or, or right. vice versa. They see this and they go, I don't know what this is going to be. And so they're willing to give you that, you know, 30 seconds or hopefully more to let them hear what it is, you know, and, and they don't have preconceptions about it, which is great. That is great. And uh, the fact that uh, you can, again, use it to play a variety of music. Sure. I think helps to tell the story um, for events. You um, you also do popular music, and you also do some classics, right? And so you can bring that bring that into the event if yeah, so I, be I, it. If you know, at, at a at asked. a quote unquote corporate type event, background music event. I mean, even at the fair. I mean, I I throw anything from Beatles to Bach to you know, jazz standards and just to give people some reference, if nothing else. And and de again, depending on the room and reading the room, you see what's going to go over better and you go down that path. So I'm happy to do that. You know, it of course comes out a little different than it does in the original because most of these, this music didn't have a stick to begin with. Right. But yeah, it's, you know, reading the room really is where I, base everything off of so and, and on, I, I was gonna say honestly sing, uh, a different interpretation of a familiar melody is usually welcomed rather than a board you know people usually enjoy that right. and and I'm sure that also brings people to you and uh, I'd just like to make a point about this because in in the world of events and engagement when you're when you're not on a stage albeit one foot you know when right. you're when this when the, the audience is there on your level you have to have the ability to play and engage if they want to engage with you there is no way that you could say i'm sorry i can't answer your question right now i'm playing it that would not fly in you know so it's i just want to lay that out because the it's important and it's a skill that you have because again you're practiced you're rehearsed you you know what you're doing uh, and it's 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 an occupational hazard you can't pick the instrument up if you don't want to if you want to you know be in the corner right sure you know, yeah and it's you i mean to me i would take it so far as to say well okay i'll let my ego go and not be playing a million notes while I talk to this person and maybe one hand even drops out and I keep a little something going in one hand so I can actually talk and, <laughs> you know, one hand's on autopilot for a minute. Um, but, you know, it's funny, we're talking about the covers too. Something else came into my mind that was funny, just picking music for the event. Um, I hope he, he, I hope he never hears this, but my friend Ryan, when he, when I did do his wedding, you know, because he knows all the repertoire since we've been playing together forever. He asked me for certain songs and, and I stopped him on a couple of them. And one of them was he wanted me to do the Beatles yesterday. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I do it instrumental. I'm not singing the words, but this is such a well-known song. Like people kind of know the words. And do you really think it's appropriate for your wedding if we have something and people might start thinking in their heads at your wedding? Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Right. Well, I believe in yesterday. <laughs> this, this is maybe not a wedding song. I, you know, I'll do it if you really want. Or is it? Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> so.
Completely yeah. agree. Yeah. yeah. Completely agree. So, <laughs> are they still married? Just, you know. Oh, yeah. That was the question yeah. that I was asking. Rather, she's kind of you know, wanting and curious minds want to know. But, but there is. Do you work with singers? Yeah. Um, sure. Uh, you know, a lot of times in a context like that, I'm hired more as a guitar player, bass player, and it's like a band thing. But, um, you know, again, I, if I if I can honestly do it, I'm, I'm happy to try anything at least once. So, yeah. Yeah, I think there could be a beautiful a marriage of a vocalist with you. Um, just a duet could be really beautiful. Not that you need it, but just, you know, something different. Um, the idea of doing covers. The only reason why I mention it is in most cases, original music is just not preferred for events because there's no connection. But in your case with this instrument, you can, you can do your own music and people will still gravitate. But here's my take on covers. Most people, to my thinking, purely my thinking, will evaluate your ability as a musician based on how you play something they're familiar with, because they don't really have that musical knowledge. So if they hear you do something they know and you do it well, then they're like, oh, wow, he's good. That's the connection, you know? So I... I always feel it's important to do them in events. And, and it sounds to me like you use them like most musicians should. And that is by looking at your crowd and knowing who it is you have there and taking educated guesses based on demographics and what you're observing. Sure. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you're talking about people evaluating you based on covers. I had a music teacher in college years ago say, if you're going to do a cover, the closer you do it to the original, the more people are kind of get, are going to judge you. The more you kind of make it your own and do something that's, you know, still the song, still recognizable, but you're doing something different with it, then they're not, they don't have those expectations in place of the original. And so even for me, like I mentioned, playing a Beatles song, I mean, it's, it's already instrumental on a Chapman stick. Like it's pretty far away from <laughs> the four piece Beatles band, you know? Right, right. So I, I, you know, even with those, I, I can kind of bend and twist them as I go a little bit and people are still just happy they're hearing the song. But so. at the end of the day, there is more money in songwriting if you can write the right songs, right? <laughs> That's always the trick. But, you know, I, I, own. I had a I had a songwriting teacher at Berkeley who he was it was funny. I mean, I, I just love hearing different people's experiences and things. But he was actually the guy who had written, if you guys remember these jingles and he had done um the Good Time, Great Taste of McDonald's was his jingle, if you remember that one. And Gillette, Best a Man Can Get, that was his jingle. Mm -hmm. So every time those, those major companies played that in an ad, he was getting on like, you know, a couple cents here, a couple cents there. The rumor at the school was that he was a millionaire and he was just teaching part-time for the fun of it, <laughs> these royalties. But he, he was an interesting guy because you're at the school with this big jazz history and, and you know rock and everything else but th there's this push in, in a school environment to make things more complicated more complicated more complicated and he would come in the room sometimes and be all these kids waiting in the hallway for some other jazz class or something he's like 
he'd turn and look out the door and go, yeah, go learn all about that jazz. And he'd shut the door and turn to us and say, and we'll make all the money. (laughs) (laughs) This great lesson of like, yeah, you don't need to be complicated. You know, you don't need to be crazy music depth all the time. So Peter Sprague was another one I'm sure you guys are familiar Mm -hmm. with. I studied with with him for about a year too. And one of my first lessons with him, you know, this is, I'm out of Berkeley. I'm playing guitar still. hadn't gotten a stick yet. I sit down with him and he plays the first chord, a C major chord. It's like the first chord most guitarists learn. And he just plays it and he looks at me as it's ringing and he goes, isn't that a beautiful sound? Like the most basic guitar chord you could do. And it was just his point. I was like, yeah, you're a can't lose sight of, you know, the beauty of simplicity sometimes. So any famous last words for us? Any, any, uh, any closing uh, words of wisdom for anyone who might be interested in doing corporate events, a musician that might like to maybe start making some money as a performer? I think, you know, the summary of a lot of what we talked on was flexibility, just being able to do you know, what the client wants when they want it, whether, whether or not they even know they want it, <laughs> you know, like right. we talked about reading the room. Sometimes they may ask you for one thing, but you know, they may not know what they really want. So you don't, you can't let your ego get in the way and say, well, I'm going to do this. But at the same time, you know, you're playing to what's interesting them, what's holding their attention or not. If, if they're having a business meeting, you don't want to be too attention grabbing. You want to be more in the background. Mm-hmm. So flexibility is the way I look at it. Don't think we could disagree with you there. It's one yeah, of the yeah. things that we look for when we're looking for people. Uh, because at the end of the day, things often don't go the way they're planned. And, you know, especially in our world and the more flexible you can be. And I think what, what, you realize also, Tom, is that you you really do have a lot of power. You hold a lot of power in your hand because you're controlling the sound. And so you have the ability to help cover mistakes, mm-hmm. uh, to help, you know, delay things if need be. So there's a, and you really, um, um, you could be seen as the planner's friend like you're you know because at the end of the day if things are going wrong you're the first person that should be notified so that you can help to cover whatever it is that's happening and the fact that you present that is why you're so successful and it's one of the reasons we love working with you because you 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 understand what people need and and you are i mean as a musician you know, especially I think the solo performer or duo to me is, is just an extension of solo if it's drums, but you're the mood of the room. It's always remarkable to me at the end of the night, you know, if you have a contract that says, well, the music's going to stop at nine o'clock and, you know, I'll sometimes play to 901 and if things are still going and you stop, it's like, oh, the whole feel of the room just changes. Even if they put on canned background music or something, it's just everything's suddenly a little off. It's a little different. So it's you know you're you're right there, a part of steering the ship. Oh yeah, 
you are, uh, and you hold it in your hands, honestly. I always say to people of all of the facets of an event, the entertainment, even if it's background music, has the power to mold and shape the event and, and help the event designer, thrower, host get what they want out of it, even if it's just background music. And the thing is that you add the extra little something that people are looking for when they want background music that's also intriguing or interesting. So it's great to use you uh, in situations when the crowd is well-educated or culturally very diverse, or there's an international group, or it's doctors, because you have that extra, it's a Chapman stick. Most people don't know what it is. And the fact that you play it so gloriously helps to really enable those it, it helps the planner to get those people to buy in those are hard audiences sure. right the more people know the harder it is to entertain them and that's another beauty of what it is you have there in front of you and what it is that you do you know for the most discerning among us sure that's a that's a great perspective it's a, it's an interesting insight i've had over the years that a lot of the hobbyist stick players people that get it and play for fun a lot of them are engineers. They're software engineers or they're mechanical engineers or something. There's definitely not, there's something. Musicality, there's no musicality there. Yeah, but there's something about, you know, that, that sort of upper intellectual crowd that can kind of gravitate towards the stick or something. It's an interesting, just side note, there's people that work at JPL and things, <laughs> you know? So I'm sure I was going to mention, we were talking about the idea that you set the mood. I thought, you know, it really is almost like being a, the composer of a film score for a movie. You know, yeah. you, you take the music out of the movies. It's like, okay, it's fine. But you put it in and suddenly there's this emotional content that just accentuates everything. Mm -hmm. That's the purpose of music, right? To take us where the word cannot or the scene cannot. I don't want to even say goodbye because this is so much fun. It's really been a pleasure having you here. We have to come and see the studio. Maybe you'll invite us up someday. Absolutely. Yeah. When we're, whenever, whenever we're when COVID is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I know. Right. Exactly. And we hope to see you soon on some live gigs as well. Yeah. Hope so. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care, man. Thanks for Thanks. coming. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Thank you. Thank you everybody. Tom Graber. Chapman stick player, musician extraordinaire. Thank you. Thanks. Have a good night. Well, that was really an incredible interview with Tom Grice Graber, uh, just an incredible musician and so humble and very. right. Easy to talk with and um, very grounded. And, you know, you can. Yeah and educated, uh, musically educated, multifaceted. Um, he exemplifies, one of the reasons we want to have him on the show is he exemplifies what we consider professionalism in the, the arena in which we work. Uh, it's not just about the musicianship, which we see the, the man has in spades, right? I mean, he's an yes. incredible talent. 
it's about the attitude, the willingness to be prepared and to put yourself in the position of the host to understand what it is they're trying to do, and then to help them achieve that the best way you can. Anything else to add to that? Well, just one of the things that I've learned from working with you and, and, and this industry is a question to ask when we're bringing on new artists or when people approach it. The first question I asked is, are you interested in doing corporate work? Do you know what that entails? Because it's different than playing in a barn. Mm-hmm. Not so denigrating anything. Everything has its place and its importance. Doing corporate is completely different. And I learned that as an artist working with you. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't understand the difference as much until I started working. It's very different. And, uh, you know, I remember we were working with a group, beautifully, a beautiful group, you know, the, the jazz, uh, incredibly talented. But between every song, there was at least a 45 second, 30 second pause, sometimes a minute. There was sort of this lackadaisical uh, sort of energy in between the songs. And whether it was implied, whether it was fear on behalf of the performers uh, or um, planned or be, uh, because they had to you know, move their music around, um, whatever it was, I couldn't get that artist to understand the necessity of not having those, what felt like huge breaks in between. Now that at one time was the style. When, when you would have a society band, it was a 45, 15 minute set, and you expected that there would be a moment of silence in between each song. But as Tom pointed out, you're setting a mood and you can't set a mood if after each song, there's a 30 second to 60 second delay right. before your next song comes, right? And if it's because you're using music, then you should make sure your music's in the right order and everybody's music is in the right order if you're a group, even though you shouldn't be using it. If you need it, it should be in the right order and it should be ready to go so that that's not an issue. You shouldn't be calling tunes on the fly unless unless those two, unless the people that you're playing with can accommodate those without fumbling around and, and have the talent and skill and ability to do it. It's just, um, it's about preparedness. And this is what we're talking about at events. It's what's noticed most. And uh, quite honestly, it's what we care about a great deal at Bellotta because we want people to think the best of you. And if there's a sense of inflexibility or if you're too loud, uh, they're not going to enjoy you. That's just, that's as simple as it is. So with that, thank you for joining us. Uh, Please, if you have any comments, if you'd like to uh, chat with us, just go to our website, bolada.com, and look for the Boladafy tab. Or you can email us at info at bolada.com and put Boladafied in the subject, please. Listen, wherever you listen to your podcasts, Apple Podcasts or wherever, please give us five stars. There's plenty of stars. They don't go away. You get them. You can can give them all the time. So 
you know, please. It couldn't hurt. So please give us five stars and please listen to us and like us and get your friends to listen. And Alex, final words. Uh, you know, art inspires art. And after listening to Tom play, when we're wrapping up, when we're done, I'm going to go right. I'm inspired. Good for you. Good for you for our next comedy class. Yes. All right. Writing go. Everybody, thank you for joining us and uh, make it a great uh, day. We'll, we'll see you soon. No. No, you'll hear us soon. That's more appropriate. (laughs) Bye-bye. Did you know Cloris Leachman? Uh, no, of her. I, I didn't know her, of course. Uh, she she apparently lived in Encinitas. Oh, yeah. That's, you know who else did what... that I had an encounter with was actually Robbie Shankar. Oh, uh, yeah. A sitar player. And, and I had a really funny encounter with him once, just talking about funny events. But the Museum of Making Music in Carlsbad had hired me to play um, at a fundraiser dinner. And I'm on their little one foot high stage playing and there's a table of people directly in front of me talking and it's low enough volume. I can hear what they're saying. And of course they're talking about me and I'm not looking at them and they're, they're talking about what's that instrument, what's that instrument. And a, a gentleman at the table, I think trying to impress everybody said, oh, that's an electric sitar. And sitting at the table right next to him was Ravi Shankar and his wife. And I thought, oh, if you only knew. <laughs> like, right. I just heard them. I heard from the museum folks later. They said, yeah, Robbie was really upset that they were talking while you were playing. And I thought, well, I don't care, but it's nice of Robbie. Robbie, I guess. Right. That's right. Yeah.